Welcome back to the channel. On this channel, we talk about clinical studies, we talk about evidence-based medicine, we talk about health policy. That's my wheelhouse, and that's what you get on this channel. We've taken deep dives into many cancer clinical trials. Today, we're going to talk about some lies and exaggeration. I've had a number of professors email me and DM me to point out that there are people in our profession who are exaggerating what we know about kids' vaccines. And they are pretty worried about that because the last thing you want to do as a scientist is to exaggerate what you know about something. And so I'm going to walk you through it. This is lies and exaggeration. I think reasonable people can disagree about the threshold for regulatory authorization or approval for different products. Reasonable people can disagree. We can all say aducanumab, it was way too low. We can all say some cancer drugs, it's way too low. Some of us may argue that boosters, a third dose or the fourth dose in people over the age of 50 is too low. And some people might say the regulatory hurdles that this FDA used for emergency use authorization in young kids is too low. They would have liked to see, and I'm included in this, randomized control trials powered for clinical endpoints, severe disease, hospitalization, MISC. That would be hundreds of thousands of kids, maybe millions of kids, but that's okay. Jonas Salk did hundreds of thousands of person randomized trial for the polio vaccine, and Pfizer can afford it. We know that to be true. There may be other people who feel like I do. Those people may include Marion Gruber and Phil Kraus. Those were the two FDA officials who resigned in vaccine drug products. But putting that aside, reasonable people disagree on the threshold for approval. Put that aside. Let's say something has been authorized, something has been approved. Well, then what you want is public health to be as brutally honest as possible. What do you know about this product? What don't you know? Tell me what you know, be honest about it, and tell me what you don't know. But if they start to exaggerate or to say things that we don't know to be true, that could lead to a situation where some of what they're saying turns out not to be true. It just could be bluff and bluster. And if that's the case, it could lead to horrific losses in trust. It also subverts the autonomy of the person listening. I mean, we all make autonomous healthcare choices contingent on knowing the facts. And if we don't know all the facts or we are exaggerated the facts, that's not a free choice. So let me talk about lies and exaggeration. This is the New York Times. This is from a recent article covering this, this Kids Under Five decision. It says, but vaccination, well, let me read the whole quote. Some parents may be uninterested because their children were among the 75% thought to have already been infected. It's actually probably a little bit higher. That's already an outdated CDC um, seroprevalence estimate. And it uses the seroprevalence of an antibody that could not be set off by vaccination. So this is a true infection seroprevalence. But vaccination provides more powerful and consistent protection even if a child has already been affected, CDC scientists noted on Saturday. The truth is, you know, they don't know that to be true, that if a child has already had COVID and recovered from COVID, we do not know that they have a further reduction in MISC, death, hospitalization, etc., from a potential reinfection. I think that this is an exaggeration, more powerful and consistent protection. In my mind, that sounds like you've measured clinical endpoints. You have not. And so I don't think you should be saying that. This is literally based on nothing. This is actually, I would say, incorrect. It's a lie. The best they could say is that although some people speculate that to be the case, we currently have no large-scale randomized evidence to support that claim. We don't even have observational data to support that claim in this age group because, of course, we haven't yet debuted the vaccine. And we may someday have observational data, but it should be taken with a grain of salt because it will be riddled with residual confounding, which I'll get to in a future slide. This is Andy Slavitt, who was a member of the uh, former, well, I guess two administrations ago, the Obama administration. Now polls say only 20% of parents will vaccinate their under five-year-olds. I'll address that in a second, but most important point for parents is that anyone who wants to can do it and that it is a game changer. 
We know it protects against serious illness and long COVID. Well, actually, you don't know that, Andy. You don't know that to be true. Those trials are too small to certainly to lead to any comment about serious illness. Severe disease is too infrequent that no one can say anything about that. And you certainly don't know about long COVID. That wasn't even a measured endpoint in these studies. And first of all, what's even the definition of long COVID in kids? We'll have to sort that out first. So this, I think, is a lie. It's an exaggeration. It's, it's trying to get somebody to do something, but it's not being perfectly honest. We don't know this to be true. And I actually said that, you know, people should report it to Twitter for misinformation. It is misinformation. Why should Twitter only have misinformation go in one direction when it goes against the policy preferences on Twitter? This is Ashish Jha from Good Morning America. I watched the video clip. He was asked point blank by George Stephanopoulos, should a child who's already had COVID and recovered get this vaccine if they're under five? And he says, in his reply to that question, the evidence is clear vaccines prevent hospitalizations and serious illness. Of course, for a child under the age of five who's had and recovered from COVID-19, we do not have any evidence that would support that claim. We do not have evidence that vaccination improves any health outcome for them and certainly don't have the evidence that it prevents hospitalization serious illness in those kids. These randomized studies are just too small. You may be leveraging some other data sets, which I'll talk about in a second, but this is certainly, I think, untrue and not a good answer to the question. The real answer is we don't know. And, you know, Certainly the upper bound benefit to those kids has got to be smaller than the benefit to a kid who had not yet had COVID-19. That's the honest answer, just because of absolute risks. But this answer, I believe, is just factually incorrect. It's exaggeration to achieve a policy goal. This is something put forward by the Brown University School of Public Health, and it's riddled with, you know, expert opinion masquerading as evidence or Correction, the opinions of a few people who are self-anointed experts masquerading as evidence. Talking about COVID-19s for children six months to four years old, I just show you a few things that I thought were problematic. We know from vaccinate, we know from vaccinations in five to 17 year olds that hospitalization, critical illness, and deaths are all more common among kids and teens who are not vaccinated than kids and teens who are vaccinated and boosted. Well, the way you're phrasing this is almost like um, hard to argue with. We know that it's more common, but that's not the question people have. The question people have is, by vaccinating a child in this age group, do you lower the risk? It's the causal question. It's not the association question. You're phrase phrasing it like an association, not a causal. And let's take a look at the paper you actually cite under that more common link. It's this paper, of course, which I believe I've talked about on this channel before, the Overcoming COVID-19 Investigators, New England Journal. It's a case control test negative design to assess vaccine effectiveness in COVID-19 leading to hospitalization against critical COVID-19. In this design, vaccine effectiveness is estimated by comparing the odds of antecedent vaccination among hospitalized case patients who have laboratory confirmed COVID-19 and control patients without COVID-19. The dates of emergency use authorization, blah, blah, blah. But here's the key. They're taking people who are hospitalized with laboratory confirmed COVID-19 and asking how often were they vaccinated and control patients who are hospitalized um, with without COVID-19 and how often they were vaccinated in the past. This is a classic case control design. But these studies run a serious risk. And I'll give you an example from pancreas cancer many decades ago. And that serious risk is the control group of patients. It's going to be enriched with not the average healthy kid, but a kid who probably has a lot of comorbidities, who probably is the kind of kid that Doctors were a little bit worried this kid might be hospitalized anyway. The kid has some underlying medical problem, some risk factor, something that makes the doctor worried that they might be hospitalized because those are the kinds of kids that unfortunately become hospitalized. It's not like it. If you look at kids who are hospitalized, there's a good chunk of hospitalized kids who 
You might have seen it coming. They're not the average kid on the street. They're a kid who's suffering from some underlying disease. That's my point. The reason that's important is that kid is probably far more likely than the average kid to have been vaccinated beforehand. Why? Because that's the kid, the pediatrician, the parent, the doctor, everyone is rushing to get a vaccine in that kid. And so you can get an artificial or spurious association in a case control study like this. And the classic example goes back a few decades in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was looking at pancreas cancer and drinking coffee. And they looked at people who were hospitalized who had pancreas cancer and how often they drank coffee and it was, you know, a good amount. And then they looked at hospitalized people for other reasons besides pancreas cancer and how often they drank coffee and it was a lot less. But the bias is that if you were hospitalized for a reason besides pancreas cancer, you probably had some underlying medical problems. And some of those medical problems might have made you less likely to drink coffee. You might have had less craving for it, or you might have or you might have not been advised not to do it because of other medications you're taking. And so when investigators repeated this study using, well, of course, if you if you look at it this way, of course, coffee looks like it causes pancreas cancer. That's the implication. But when they repeated this with a better control arm, they found that that association vanished and was likely due to sort of picking controls in this poor way. And I actually think this is actually quite similar. It's picking controls in a way that is extremely unreliable. This is not randomized data. There's a reason why we do randomized trials and not do shitty case control studies. And that's because we just don't know that the controls are really otherwise comparable. In fact, I speculate that the biggest bias here is that the controls are far more likely than the average person to have been vaccinated. That's a big problem. It has another problem in it, which is that we are excluding people who are vaccinated shortly before symptom onset. The reason I think that's problematic is that it's it's playing this game. The game is, you know, what is the benefit of vaccination if you choose to do it or not do it? You don't get to exclude cases that occur right after vaccination saying, well, that shouldn't count. My vaccine hasn't kicked in. You got to own all that. This is called an intention to treat analysis. You got to own that. And I think that's actually problematic here in this case control study. Back to their point, then I think it's, you know, we really don't know, especially in kids five to 11, if it actually lowers hospitalization or MISC. I haven't yet seen a good study to persuade me, particularly in kids who's had COVID. This is the brown kid, the brown, the brown, uh, not the brown kids, the brown I don't know, what are they? They're self-anointed experts putting out their pamphlet. Um, here's what it says about the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine studies. In both studies, vaccinated children saw fewer infections. Vaccines reduced the rate of any infection by between 37 and 80%. Although the overall number of cases were low, both vaccines are expected to decrease hospitalization and ICU stays as well. Is that so? <laughs> I mean, you may expect that to be the case, but some of us want data, not expectations, by people who have a certain point of view. and. The 37 to 80%, I think that's inaccurate, and here's why. One, they're getting that 37%, I think, from Moderna. That's where they're getting that. But if you look at the Moderna packet, you will see a sensitivity analysis, and it's really important to understand this. Moderna, in the primary analysis, you have to have a test documented by a certain type of test performed in a certain laboratory setting. If somebody has COVID-19 and they use a home test and don't get that laboratory-confirmed assay, they do not count in that Moderna 37%. In the Moderna documentation, they perform a sensitivity analysis where they say, what if we included any home test in addition to the documented laboratory tests? And the vaccine efficacy plummets to 28.5%. So it ain't 37% in this, I think, very appropriate sensitivity analysis. Now let's look at the Pfizer claim. Where do they get 80%? I struggle to understand where that 80 comes from. And I think they're looking at this slide that was presented at the FDA Verback, which is cases that occur seven days after dose three. And there appears to be a bit of an imbalance and that vaccine efficacy gets close to 80%, 75%. The confidence interval goes from, you know, the usual minus 370% to 99.6%. That's kind of a big, big confidence interval that should give you little confidence. That's a reliable result. 
but also you don't get to play this game. This is the same game as excluding cases that occur right after vaccination. You have to own all of these cases. The question is, if I choose to be vaccinated or not, what is my future outcomes? Everything after that choice has to be included. You don't get to say the first seven days or 10 days don't count because no vaccination, if you exclude the first 180 days, actually looks great because, of course, you know, there's only a few days on the end of that before we've stopped follow-up. You know, you can't exclude days. It actually it has deeper problems, actually. Um, you know, it actually leads to sort of a confounding problem, which is that it actually, it's no longer intention to treat, it's per protocol. You had to have uh, had three doses to even be considered, which is selecting for some people, not the initial randomly assigned group, but some people have certain characteristics. Um, and that is a non-random group. And so suddenly you sort of introduced a lot of the confounding you sought to avert when you randomized. Anyway, you can think more about that, but that happens to be a fact. Um, one more point here. If you actually read the EUA for Pfizer in this age group, it says, quote, an additional analysis pertaining to the occurrence of COVID-19 cases was determined not to be reliable due to the low number of COVID-19 cases that occurred in study participants. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say 80% or 75%. So that claim that these vaccines have been found to be 37% to 80% effective is a lie. It's untrue. The FDA is, no, is not making a statement about Pfizer, as you see on the screen, and the FDA and the Moderna statement does not include the sensitivity analysis, which is a very logical analysis because people aren't getting laboratory-confirmed Omicron infections. Most people who test positive test at home, and that's the end of that. They're not getting further testing. Eric Weinstein has a thread on this, and, you know, I got to say he's got some great points. The way I hear it, we assume the argument that all good parents agree, quote, COVID vaccines equals clear, pure, good, slam dunk, costless and riskless, no-brainer science. Vaccine concerns are right-wing, alt-right, anti-science, Fox News-esque, MAGA-adjacent, anti-American. People are really painting it in this way, and that's really terrible. We need to be honest about these. And the more you paint it in this way, you're actually going to lose a demographic that you really, you know, don't want to lose. You don't want to lose people who disagree with you politically, people on the right. You want those people involved in science. Of course, science is for everybody. I have no understanding how so many non-technical people who know nothing about immunology know absolutely this is a good long-term trade-off. You know, I would, and then he says, I would feel differently if we had decades of experience with these types of vaccines, if we're aggressive in pursuing the origin, if critics had grant, grant, grant guarantees Fauci couldn't touch. I think that's a fair point. I mean, you know, I've always, I've always felt that that was a huge bias that Fauci is the head of NIAID. Actually, people feel as if he controls their grant funding, so they don't want to speak out against him. Here's what he says. As a parent, I'm lost. I don't hear a conversation. I'm used to the austere language of disability adjusted life years and quality adjusted life years, trade-offs, expected value, disease burden, iatrogenics, etc. I'm used to the language of adaptive landscapes and viral evolution, but this style of thinking is unknown in science. And I think what he's getting at is that people are just proselytizing and exaggerating on TV, and there's not really a dialogue about what's known or not known. His last point, I think, is really well put. To sum it all up, the advice to vaccinate with really new types of pharmaceuticals should feel like it comes from scientists who are 100% on their game as scientists. Instead, it feels like a call center overseas trying to pressure your widowed great aunt to buy gift cards. And, you know, I'm really sympathetic. I'm really sympathetic to Eric Weinstein. I think he's right that all this public health messaging, all these exaggerations, just say the truth. We ran these small studies. You know, we didn't see any concerning safety signals of myocarditis in prepubescent kids. That's good news. 
we have a geometric mean antibody titer. Yes, this is to a really old Wuhan strain vaccine. And no, I have no idea if a healthy kid who had COVID recovered benefits. I can't because we didn't do that kind of study. Yes, we should have. And yes, Pfizer has the money to do it. And yes, we could have if we had that, you know, sort of a political will. But we didn't because we really want to get this to you. But, you know, you should know that, you know, you shouldn't feel pressure to do it. You shouldn't feel pressure not to do it. There are countries like Sweden that are not recommending it for kids 5 to 11. But if you want to do it, that's fine, too. Um, you know, it, it, of course, in the grand scheme of life, the risks are probably pretty low. You know, it's okay. In the grand scheme of life, sure. Um, the benefits might be pretty low, too, in the grand scheme of life. And, you know, that it, that that's what we got for you right now. If they said that, I think Eric wouldn't feel this way. They're not saying that they are exaggerating and lying and distorting the truth. And they're saying things like it's 80% effective. That's just not true. Even the 37% I would take with a grain of salt. Um, you know, they're not being accurate and faithful scientists. And I think it's going to hurt them. And here's why. I've shown this figure before. This is the uptake. That dotted line on the bottom shows that kids 5 to 11, we're looking at about one-third of them have uptake. And Andy Slavitt said in his tweet that he thinks about 20% of parents are going to do this. Yeah, all you're lying and exaggerating and it's going to be the same thing. The 20% that wants to do it will do it. And you're not flipping any votes. You're not persuading anybody because you're laying it on a little thick and you're not being honest about it. And in the process, you're discrediting yourself to the, you know, five of us professors or maybe more than five who still actually believe that science and evidence have certain values and culture um, that still stand for that. The last point I'll make, um, you know, I guess I just say that the things we know about kids' vaccines um, is a very is is low. I mean, we just don't have a lot of knowledge about that. That is a man-made problem. That's a that's a person-made, human-made problem. We could have known more had we done bigger and better studies. We chose not to. Um, that may be done for political expediency. That's probably done in part because the companies have extreme lobbying power um, at the uh, level of of the White House. You've seen mass. You've seen resignations from two top people at FDA, and they shouldn't have let those people go. They should have said. We're going to, keep, we want to preserve the credibility of the FDA. We need you to stay here and we're going to play by your rules. We're not going to pressure you to approve boosters, which is what the New York Times have said is the reason for their, for their leaving. I think Eric Weinstein is right. Nobody likes the feeling of somebody selling you something. Everyone can tell the evidence is sparse. I mean, randomizing a few thousand people for events that occur on the order of 10 to the power of six or even rarer than that, it's not sufficient, it's inadequate. And um, I think there are a lot of questions. And I don't think that any good scientist can say with confidence that a kid who's four years old, who's healthy, who hadn't recovered from Omicron, has a net health benefit from getting the vaccine. We don't know that to be true. Is it possible it could be true? Sure, it's possible it could be true. We don't know it to be false either. It's uncertain. And that's the right messaging. That's the accurate messaging. So that's what you get on this channel, policy analysis by somebody who's been in the evidence-based business a long time. You know what to do if you like this video. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. And um, until next time.